It's Friday, October 21st, 2022, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today uh, by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, the California High Speed Rail Authority released its latest sustainability report this week. Uh, the report claims that uh, the rail system has been meeting the state's ambitious climate goals and preserving an enormous amounts of plants and wildlife. It also claims that the system is generating between $12.7 billion and $13.7 billion in total economic activity in the state. And this comes a day after the New York Times published a report titled How California's Bullet Train Went Off the Rails. Um, The article reads in part, quote, the rail authority said it has accelerated the pace of construction on the smarter system, but at the current spending rate of $1.8 million a day, according to projections widely used by engineers and project managers, the train could not be completed in this century. Uh, now, this is four times the original cost of the project. Uh, gentlemen, what do you think is the future of high-speed rail in California? I think we'll start with you, Bill, today. Um, I would actually defer to Lee on this, but my thoughts on this, the future of high-speed rail is it is the train, um, if not the train to nowhere, it's a train that's going nowhere very fast. If you go inside that uh, New York Times column, for example, it has the um, this rather um, this uh, daunting passage, quote, the rail authority said it accelerated the pace of construction on the starter system. That's the line running from the Central Valley that Lee will help explain. But the current spending rate of $1.8 million a day, according to projections widely used by engineers and project managers, the train could not be completed in this century. So Lee, what this would suggest is that it's going to take 77 more years to build a train that runs through two sparsely uh, populated corners of California. Don't even connect to Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, we also know, Lee, that uh, high-speed rail is now about four times the original estimated cost that was sold to voters when they first did the bond uh, over um, a dozen years ago. So, Lee, I, I just don't see a, f- uh, a future for this system. By the way, I would note one final thing. The director of the um, California High-Speed Rail, um, a very nice uh, gentleman named Tom Richards, always has a very very clever way with words. And what he likes to say is anytime they talk about progress, his words are, it's quote, one step closer to reality. But Lee, I think the reality is this train system just ain't working. No, no. Um, you know, Bill, if uh, I ma- imagine, uh, imagine going back in time to 2008, which is when California voters approved um, uh, a $4.2 billion bond to finance the rail system. And what was promised to California voters? Um, I did a, an, an, you know, uh, kind of long story short, I did a, an interview with Fox News um, about this a week or two ago. Um, and what was promised to California voters at 2008? What I told Fox News in this interview is um, essentially um, uh, a metaphor for Santa Claus. <laughs> you know, the idea that the idea that California was going to was going to connect the entire state, north, south, um, interior California, the Central Valley with major cities for $30 billion and have it operational by 2020. That, that was, that was, that's like believing in Santa Claus. So, 
So imagine we go back in time to 2008 and we told voters, um, hey, we can build we can build um, high-speed rail. It may not be as fast as uh, the 220 miles an hour we promised you. Uh, it may be much slower than that. Um, but imagine we could build high-speed rail, roughly speaking, between Bakersfield and Merced in the Central Valley. Merced's obviously a very small town. Um, with a stop through Fresno, imagine we could do that for somewhere around $30 billion and have it ready to run, you know, maybe by 2029, but more realistically, probably closer to 2034. So what would California say to spending $30 billion to connect Bakersfield and Merced and Fresno and have it good to go 25 years later. Bill, you're <laughs> Bill, you're the political expert. How, how do you think that bond, how do you think that bond approval measure would have gone over? <laughs> I think the question is uh, how soon eventually uh, we're gonna see a ballot measure um, in California, Lee, which will uh, put an end to high-speed rail and repurpose the money for, I would say local transportation. But uh, the analogy I'd use is this, I'm uh, actually speaking to you today on a brand new laptop. Um, it's actually a 2020 model of a laptop, but it still works just as well as a new laptop, so I saved a couple hundred dollars. This is 2020 technology, which is still germane in 2022. Yeah, Jonathan, you're building a high-speed rail, which is based on designs that you know were begun early this century, so the technology is at least 20 years old. You're talking about completing it 20, 30 years from now. It seems to me that you're just getting very old technology on top of everything else. But you know, again, I just get down to this, this point, Lee, how can even if Californians want to do this, Lee, how can you possibly finance it? Um, there's not money in the state alone to do it. Uh, we're not going to be borrowing money from the Chinese to do this, I think. I think the only, in terms of the only, you know, pixie to come along and help us would be the federal government. But even as we saw with the, the presidency and, and infrastructure money, precious little came to California for high-speed rail. So it's just, you know, California's going to take a sober assessment of this at some point and say that, look, even if we like high-speed rail, and who wouldn't like to go from Los Angeles to San Francisco uninterrupted, sitting on a nice train working on your laptop and just kind of kicking back as opposed to fighting through airports, um, it just, it's not going to work the way it is. So either you have to go back to the drawing board and redesign it, or I think just, you know, euthanize it, kill it. And I think, I think we're at the point where we have to kill it, Lee and Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Bill, interestingly, um, there is a French engineering company who specializes in high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. they, they came to California um, around 2010 right. after the, after the ballot, after the ballot measure was approved. Um, and their interest was obviously in trying to, in trying to build this. So they had a lot of discussions um, with the high-speed rail committee, and I believe even um, provided some detailed plans. Uh, and they seem to really know what they're doing. They've done they've done a lot of these successfully. And um, and Bill, you know what they said? Uh, they ended up leaving, yeah. <laughs> they ended up walking away. And what they said is that California is more dysfunctional politically than Northern Africa. And they ended up, they ended up taking their talents to borrow a phrase from LeBron James when he took his talents to Miami years ago to play basketball. They ended up taking their talents, uh, I believe, to Morocco, and um, and they, they and they've already completed high speed rail in Morocco. So functional than Northern Africa. So you know, if I had to bet on what's going to happen, um, I think what will happen is that. They'll they'll uh, they'll finish the starter route in the yeah. Central Valley. Uh, I suspect because there is no financing available for any more of this. I mean, we've 
we've essentially, we've emptied the coffers for a high-speed rail. Um, the bond measure is totally allocated. The federal money we've received is totally allocated. Almost certainly what we are planning right now from Bakersfield to Merced will continue to go way over budget. So whatever federal transportation monies that are coming in, I think probably will be used for that. Um, you know, the sad story is, Bill, when you talked about technology advancing, one of the big selling points for this back in 2008 is that it'll get people out of cars uh, and, um, and reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And as you pointed out, let people do things like work on their laptops. Well, by the time, you know, not this ever going to be completed, but if it were to be completed, they're just going to be electric cars in the state. Mm-hmm. So greenhouse gas emissions goes out the window. There's no good. There's not going to be any 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 greenhouse gas emission savings. Yeah. Um, and self self driving cars will be available. So this has just been um, an enormous disaster. Nothing short of that. It's going to be thirty billion plus dollars. Um, and just imagine what thirty billion plus dollars could have achieved if we had planned to try to get people from the Central Valley. To places like Silicon Valley and San Francisco, people live outside of the Bay Area and Silicon Valley for more affordable housing. They're driving hour and a half, two hours each way to get to those high paying jobs. Just think how much more we could have done with that $30 billion. So it's, um, it's in some levels, it's tragic. And the mismanagement is uh, has been has been incompetent and former chairs of the committee were interviewed in that New York Times article. And I often don't recommend people read the New York Times on economic issues. I think they're so far <laughs> off the rails, no pun intended, but um, this one's really good. And it quotes a bunch of former chair, uh, high-speed rail chair committee uh, chairs who say uh, this was literally disaster. So um, not a not a good day in the history of California. You know, Lee, one of my favorite books is uh, by the historian David McCullough. It's called The Path Between the Seas, and it's about the uh, construction of the Panama Canal. And what McCullough uh, explains at the beginning of the book, which a lot of people don't know, is actually the French uh, stepped in to try to build a Panama Canal, uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps. Uh, you mentioned the French wanted to come in and help California high-speed rail. Well, the French tried to do the canal in Panama, and it was a flaming disaster, and they pulled out of there. And eventually the canal was built for one reason. The United States government just put you know, treasure in there, financial treasure treasure, human treasure, and built the damn thing and also figure out how to deal with mosquitoes and malaria at the same time. I think that's about the only way you get high-speed rail in California, Lee and Jonathan, if you just deployed the federal government out here and just made it happen. But again, there's not the will for it. Uh, there's just not the public interest in it. And so I think they've got to stop it. And I hope there's a lesson in here for California in terms of signing off on big, grandiose bonds like this and that, you know, buyer beware. Buyer beware. And, um, you know, high-speed rail is it's going to become an anachronism because it's incredibly expensive. Um, it's $100 million a mile. <laughs> you know what I mean? $100 million a mile. Those aren't gold-plated rails. Uh, but it's just incredibly costly. And as technolo- technology has advanced over time, Bill, as you pointed out, um, the benefits of high-speed rail become smaller and smaller. Um mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, shame on those people. And then, and this includes, um, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, who I think really sold a pipe dream to, to Californians. There was really never any chance this was going to get done. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, let's talk about your California on your mind column this week, um, in which you talk about the dearth of candidate debates in California. Uh, the one and only debate uh, for the governor's race is Newsom and his opponent, 
uh, State Senator Brian Dahl uh, this Sunday at 1 p.m. Um, this is happening on public radio and in competition with NFL matchups. Uh, Bill, why this development in California politics and why didn't Dahl press for a more conveniently timed debate? Well, uh, this is something incumbents do. And before um, our listeners think, I'm just going to throw Gavin Newsom under the bus for doing this. I, I worked for Pete Wilson when he was governor of California back in the 1990s. In 1994, he was running for re-election as Newsom is now. His opponent was Kathleen Brown, who at the time was the uh, California state treasurer, Jerry Brown's uh, younger sister. She was, some people saw her as the next great thing in democratic politics with the name California. Once she got elected governor, she was off to the races uh, for presidency. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Wilson liked the way the election was trending his way. He liked the fact that issues, immigration, crime were at the top of voters' minds. It was a favorable climate for him. Uh, incumbency was working for him. California last tossed out a first-term governor in 1942, so history was on his side here. The last thing he wanted to do was really give Kathleen Brown a, a, a break, and so he agreed to one debate on a Friday night on a public television station in Sacramento, and that was it. Fast forward to 2014 and Jerry Brown running for re-election against Neil Kashkari, uh, Republican. He agrees to one debate. It's on a Thursday night, uh, not in the afternoon, early evening, but it just happens to coincide with the NFL season opener. Um, what Newsom has done is he's helped take this to an even more cynical level because this is a one o'clock on the Sunday uh, when the NFL is in action, their games in San Francisco and Los Angeles, even the Raiders are playing at that hour and they still have a California following. Um, families will be out in the pumpkin patch and getting ready for Halloween. You have to be a real hardcore California political junkie. That would be me, I guess, who is actually going to sit down and listen to the thing or go try to find it if it's broadcast later on television around the state. Uh, so the answer is, why does this happen? Well, Newsom has a 20 to 30 point lead in this race. Uh, Brian Dolly, his challenger, who you mentioned, has uh, not a lot of money in the bank, not a lot of name recognition as he comes from a very rural section of California. Um, what is a W.C. Fields movie, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break? Uh, he's not going to give Dolly an even break by agreeing to more than one debate. And so here is what Californians get for better or worse. And this just applies down the ticket. Um, our Hoover colleague, Lon Hee Chen, who's on a leave of absence from Hoover, he's running for state controller right now. He spends day and night trying to get his opponent, uh, Malia Cohen, to debate. She won't do it. Why? She's probably guessing she has a lead. She doesn't give Lonnie the stage. Um, I think this is a shame, Lee and Jonathan, as far as democracy is concerned in California. Uh, you get a very thorough voter's guide in the mail. You see a lot of ads on TV, but you don't hear candidates sitting down and actually hashing through the issues. Getting back to high-speed rail for a second, this is a governor running for re-election. There's a whole agenda of his that he has to explain uh, where things have worked and where things haven't. There's a second term he needs to talk about. This is a man who's now in the middle of a national political conversation, so he needs to make the obligatory promise that he'll break that he won't run for president. Um, and a lot of matters like high-speed rail just should be vetted for the public to decide discuss. All those things, Lee and Jonathan, will not come up in this debate, probably, or at least if they do, Californians won't see it. So shame on the Golden State for having very tarnished democracy. What, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, I, I mean, it is um, it's remarkably sad um, how the states evolved uh, politically and uh, the lack of political discourse, the lack of honest discussion. This is not a partisan issue in any sense. Voters deserve to figure out um, what the issues are and, and how they're represented between candidates and so they can make a fully informed choice. Bill, um, you know, I think there's about 23 million eligible voters in California. Um, you know, um, not that you're a betting man, but if you were a betting man, 
what would be the over under on how many people are going to tune in to that to that debate on Sunday? Well, I mean, how many people listen to public radio on a Sunday afternoon and just how many television stations around California are going to bother to? They do have the opportunity to simulcast if they want to. But again, they're going to, you know, Sunday afternoon, we're up against football. People just aren't going to watch. So this is, you know, just an exercise in voter suppression. But um, it's very interesting um, when the governor's race is not uh, featuring an incumbent. When it's an open race, you sometimes do get multiple debates. Jerry Brown and Meg Whitman went at it three times in 2010. Um, Gray Davis and uh, Dan Lundgren went at it four times in 1998. And that is my fix for this. And my fix would be that somebody in California, probably the California broadcasters and you know, in cahoots with local TV and radio, they need to step up to the plate here and say, okay, we're doing three debates just to throw out a random number. We're going to do three these are the dates and be there or be square. Uh, if you were looking in Georgia this week, uh, uh, there was a Senate debate uh, between uh, Raphael Warnick and Herschel Walker. Uh, Walker decided not to show up. They did the debate anyway. And there was just an empty, you know, empty podium where, where Walker would have been. I think you do the same in California. And if the governor chooses not to debate, he doesn't, he, he then he doesn't do it. You still have the debate. And I would have one in Los Angeles. I'd have one. In, actually, my, my proposal would be to do uh, four of these. I'd do one in Los Angeles, one in San Francisco, one in Central Valley, Lee and Jonathan, then one finally in Sacramento, just tailored to state government and make each one very issue specific to that part of California, because what we know is this is a state of 39 to 40 million people. And what is germane in Los Angeles, let's say, you know, beach erosion, that doesn't play in the Central Valley. And I don't think uh, they care much about uh, the Delta smelt in Los Angeles, conversely. So tailor the debates to parts of California, and at least get the candidates out there and talking. I think voters deserve at least that much. Yeah, I love your idea um, about scheduling, scheduling these debates like they did in Georgia. Uh, Walker didn't show up, but you have it anyway. Right. <laughs> and Warnock kept pointing over um, as a politically astute guy. He's become he kept pointing over to the empty <laughs> the empty seat. Um, so, you know, shame on Gavin Newsom. Um, he has not outlined his agenda for 20 for, for a second term if he was elected. Um he campaigned on, quote, a Marshall Plan for housing, unquote, in the state. Mm-hmm. Housing starts are only 20% of what he projected. So he needs to explain that. Um, he, needs to, he needs to talk about homelessness. He needs to talk about housing prices. He needs to talk about state revenues falling remarkably this year. He needs to talk about what he thinks he should, we should be doing for a second term. And he is spending more time criticizing um, governors in red states such as DeSantis than he is on offering a plan to Californians for a second term if he was elected. And you just think about that for a second. I mean, that is such a... um, that is, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find the right word that uh, is acceptable. Is acceptable here. Um, it's just, it's just slamming the door in the face of voters here. It's completely it, irresponsible, in my opinion. Um, and and it gets, and it gets worse, Lee. In this regard, I we're doing this uh, audio, but I have a video here that we're looking at right now. This is page 54 of the California Official Voter Guide that I'm holding up for Lee and Jonathan. This is under the section of candidate uh, statements, governor, under Gavin Newsom, Democrat. 
There's nothing, no candidate statement. He didn't bother to turn one in. Why? Because if you do a candidate statement, that means you're agreeing uh, to spending limits in California. They get $16 million for the general election, uh, which Newsom could easily get by on because I think Brian Dolly maybe has a couple million dollars at the most to spend. But Newsom won't agree to that. So there's no candidate statement from the governor. There's not even a URL for a website here where you can go to look up the governor's <laughs> ideas and issues. So I mean, this is just staggering. The man's going to get probably 60% of the vote in California, but when it comes to what he He's running on it is the proverbial blank space <laughs> yeah it's gavin newsom missing in action um and it's um it is a remarkable assumption um incredibly arrogant in my opinion that he's going to win and he doesn't have to do anything whatsoever to justify his candidacy uh or to provide any information or try to get support from voters um incredibly arrogant incredibly sad that's not the political landscape of California um, that made California such a great state um, years ago. Um, and so, again, you know, voters get what voters, you know, there's the old saying voters get what they deserve. Um, and if voters are not demanding um, that the governor spend one iota of time on them to try to secure their vote, then, you know, they're, they're going to get a, a, a governor who doesn't, I expect, doesn't really do very much for them. Um, they should demand a lot better. And I agree with you. TV stations should be should be absolutely demanding much better. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure if the Gavin Newsom of 2022, Lee and Jonathan, is going to work in 2023 in this regard. Um, how tempting it will be for him to con continue this conversation in which he picks fights with red states, especially, you know, the way this election is trending right now. Yeah, a couple more weeks until the election. But right now, it looks like Republicans are picking up steam. They're going to have a good night. They're going to get the House back. They may get the Senate back. And so you're going to see a Democratic presidency really kind of reaching a crisis. And Democrats around America kind of in angst, wondering what are we going to do? Are we going to run with Joe Biden? Is there somebody new? It's tailor made for Newsom to step in. But Lee and Jonathan, here's the problem. I think it's a timing back in California. We'll get to this in a moment on the economy. If he's looking at less revenue at this year, if he's looking at an economy that's going south very fast in California, uh, he can't really devote as much time as he would like to the politics of Florida, the politics of Texas. I think the absentee governor thing will start uh, to be a label on him. So just keep an eye out for that early 2023. He's already sounding the alarms right now, especially on the revenue front. Um, why does he uh, post certain ballot measures? Because he doesn't want extra spending in the budget. Anytime given a chance to veto something he doesn't like, he'll claim poverty, if you will. But poverty could be a reality next year in California if the economy does slow down, if less revenue comes in through the form of you know, housing sales, capital gains, and so forth. So yeah, just not sure if this current Newsom is going to have to give way to a different Newsom, a dare I say, much more attentive Newsom when it comes to California. Yeah, he is. Um, he's keeping his fingers crossed. Um, put differently, 2024 can't come soon enough <laughs> yeah. for, for Newsom. Right. And another issue he wants to uh, that Governor Newsom and the Democrats seemingly want to evade is the issue of education, um, as exemplified in their in their um, decision to uh, delay uh, the government's decision to delay California K through 12 uh, test scores. Uh, Lee, this is the subject of your. Um, of your recent of your recent column for California on your mind, could you, could you describe that a little bit more? Yeah. So um, every um, on on a regular basis, every state, including California, um, provides students in in K through twelve or some subset of K through twelve uh, proficiency tests. Um, these proficiency tests typically are offered in um, English language arts um, and specifically reading comprehension mathematics comprehension and science comprehension. 
Um, now, in 2021, California uh, looks like a disaster from an educational point of view. Two-thirds of California kids are not littered at grade level. Um, the median eighth grader in terms of math proficiency uh, is at a fifth grade level. The median um, Hispanic and African-American uh, eighth grade student and about 61% of K through 12 public school kids, about 61% are either Hispanic or black. Um, nearly almost all of that is Hispanic. Okay, so the median Hispanic slash black school kid, they've got a math proficiency level for an eighth grader of, of just over a third grade level. So, so just think about that for a second. Um, an eighth grader has got the math proficiency level of, of a third grader. Um, so then you think about how well are those kids, what, what, is, what is the economic future for these kids look like? You know, remarkably dim because math builds on itself. It's, uh, it, it's an extremely high hurdle for a kid to try to make up five grade levels of math particularly in a school system that is already failing them. Okay, so now that was in 2021. So flash forward to 2022, the tests are given again. Um, the Department of Education, everyone knows the test scores are gonna be abysmal. The test scores have been ready for distribution since early summer. Some local school districts have been reporting those test results to parents. But the Department of Education so far has refused to release those test scores. Um, and the plan was to release them after the election. And so the conclusion one, one draws is obvious. It's going to be complete embarrassment showing just how remarkably tragic California's education outcomes are. And they don't want voters to see this. Um, Lance Christensen, who is a Republican running against uh, for state school superintendent running against Tony Thurmond um, has criticized this. Um, a, a nonprofit group um, which focuses on educational issues um, came, you know, one step, you know, very close to filing a lawsuit, it is saying that there is absolutely no compelling reason to delay the release of these statistics. Um, you need to do this now. And a letter was sent from their legal representative. The organization is called EdSource. Um, they're a nonprofit that focuses on educational issues, reporting data and, and analysis for parents and kids and teachers and others in the education system. So the, the, the Department of Education said, well, we're not gonna release these because um, you know, the data is provisional um, and you know, we're not ready to release it. Um, that's what one spokesman said. Another spokesman said, well, you know, it makes more sense for us to release this data when, um, when we can release it in, in conjunction with data on absenteeism, absenteeism and, um, and school suspensions. And why? <laughs> there seems to be no connection really between school suspensions and what the media kid is doing in terms of their proficiency. And so EdSource, uh, EdSource you know, made this legal argument. And so then suddenly the California Department of Education says, well, okay, we'll, we'll release it. Um, the data is not provisional. So suddenly we went from a situation in which the data was provisional and preliminary and was not ready for primetime viewing to one in which the data, the data is ready for primetime viewing. Um, as far as I know, um, the data still has not been released. Um, so again, this is just a tragedy in that so many California school kids are going to be woefully unprepared 
for a future. They're going to be woefully unable to compete with kids who are going to private schools, with kids from other states, with kids from around the globe. We live in an increasingly international world. Um, and the state educational bureaucracy is holding them hostage because parents and teachers need to know what these kids know and what they don't know. They need to provide remediation. They need to provide additional support. These kids are just pawns. Um, and it's, again, it's, I think it's an incredibly sad day that this is happening. Yeah, those are all great points, Lee. Um, you know, to put the report out in California means you have to do two things. Number one, you have to admit you screwed up on the lockdown. You just kept kids locked down, uh, locked out of schools for too long. You committed or condemned them to online learning, which has had just all sorts of terrible benefits to the kids, effects on the kids. But secondly, you're going to have to um, admit what you just said, Lee, which is that the teachers unions in California have too much control over how policy is done. And you see this play out in the uh, in the superintendent's race, the superintendent of public construction right now with Tony Thurman, the incumbent. He's pretty much beholden to the teachers unions. He will not do anything ruffle affairs, feathers, the man largely missing in action during the pandemic. Pandemic, I would add. Um, so this gets really to the status quo of education in California. The question would be this, Lee, not to put you on the spot, but let's say California does put out the report. Uh, it shows that, uh, say, similar to Kentucky, which just had grisly numbers they put out the other day on just you know all sorts of losses across the board. California admits something is wrong here. But Lee, what would be the fix given the restrictions we have in California? One party rule, uh, very strong control by the unions. What can really be done to change education in California? Well, Bill, what's, um, what's tragic is that the fix is <clears throat> is obvious from an implementation point of view. The fix is impossible to implement from a political point of view. So sure. we've been, um, yeah, um, you know, we need to expand. Um, yeah, we need to expand school choice. Um, uh, charter schools, uh, some have done a remark <clears throat> have done a remarkable job. <clears throat> Teachers unions have been very successful in getting new legislation passed that limits charter schools. Uh, <clears throat> reforming teacher tenure um, is central. Right now, teachers can gain lifetime employment um, with just um, 18 months of education time. Um, introducing merit-based pay. I mean, we live in a world where your pay depends upon your performance. Uh, that doesn't apply within uh, within schools. There's really no incentive um, outside of a teacher's interest in in feeling good about doing a good job. There's no incentives to do well. Um, pay is typically all seniority based. So, um, and I'm speaking as a teacher myself. Uh, so you've got teachers who might be 40 years of seniority, who uh, who might be uh, homeroom homeroom teachers. And they're getting paid twice as much as the 25-year-old math specialist who might be doing miracles in the classroom, teaching kids math or teaching kids science. And that, and that person ends up leaving because they don't want to stick around 25 years to get a competitive salary. So we know what to do to make schools better. Um, but there's a deep and opaque and incredibly well-funded union political education system um, organization that um, that is uh, the bull in the china shop and that bull is not going to leave um, and we've been failing kids I mean literally for decades now um, the Rand corporation um, nonpartisan think tank uh, one of the highest um, they have one of the best reputations in conducting educational research 
they date California's education failures back to the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know California used to have the best performing public schools in the country. Um, now we're among the worst. And again, parents and voters need to be demanding better. Uh, unions have been incredibly successful in um, in operating under the radar. And Bill, what would ha- what's going to happen when those results are released is is that politicians are going to talk about, yeah, you know, the pandemic was awful. They're not going to say they make a, they made a mistake by having the the longest lockdowns, but they're going to say, yeah, you know, the pandemic, yeah, we did the best we could, and we'll get kids back on track. We haven't, well, we started going off track nearly 50 years ago, and we're so far off track now. Um, what I note in that article I wrote is that um, nothing short of a complete redo um, will fix California's education. I think it could be fixed really, really fast um, if we did the right thing, um, but we're not going to do that, and it's all because of politics. So, to be a broken record, Lee, I think that there should be a Los Angeles debate with the governor, the lieutenant governor, the state treasurer, the state controller, every statewide officer who has a role to play, the uh, SPI, obviously, in education, do three issues over the course of an hour. One would be homelessness. One would be, I'd call it sustainability, which would be electricity and water. And the third component, Lee and Jonathan, would be education. And not so much, you know, just, you know, to, to rail against LAUSD, but ask the question of what is not working in California's largest city and county and what is working, and just have a very thoughtful 20 minutes on what the future of education in California looks like. But again, when you shoot Horn these debates into one afternoon on a Sunday in California, it's just not going to get the attention it deserves. So my apologies, end of rant. Bill, you know what? Uh, when we come back for our next well, for our next California on your mind podcast, I'm going to try to find out what the Nielsen ratings were for uh for that debate. And you know, there's there's I think about 23 million voters. Um, I'm gonna guess one million or less. We're gonna watch that. Um, so less than five percent. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how close I come. I'm, but, but I'm going to stick my I'm going to stick my head out and predict um, less than five percent of voters are going to tune into that. Um, and again, uh, you know, voters and their kids are the ones really, really being damaged by this. Yeah, gentlemen, let's talk about California's place in national politics. A Hill column this week had the headline: Kamala Harris is already among the most consequential vice presidents in history. Um, it reads like a parody, but what the author of the article is getting at is her record amount of tie-breaking votes, uh, 26 tying former um, 19th century vice president John C. Calhoun, uh, under <laughs> Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. Right. Um, it seems like a bit of a stretch. Uh, you know, casting a vote doesn't require any sort of remarkable leadership, but can she at all capitalize on this achievement in national politics? Well, I'm not sure she wants to go down uh, in the same pages as John C. Calhoun. I say this having just come from Charleston, South Carolina, where Calhoun's statue was uh, taken down um, a couple of years ago with great fanfare because why he's a vestige of the old South. Uh, Calhoun's name was also eradicated from the uh, uh, from the uh, dorms of Yale University as well. Uh, he's kind of becoming a non-person, if you will. And Kamala Harris risks becoming something of a non-entity in, in national politics at the rate she is going. I, you know, I saw that headline and I first snickered and thought. This is the onion. Um, Kamala Harris is consequential. This is a woman who seems to pop up the news more times or often for the wrong reasons when she goes out and gives some just elaborate word salad. It just doesn't make sense. Or the story the other day when her uh, her car got into a wreck uh, in Washington, D.C. It's just, you know. If not, you know, bad luck, she'd have no luck at all, it seems. So, and this does raise an interesting question for Democrats moving forward. I 
did a uh, Goodfellows episode of Hoover uh, a couple of weeks ago with Carl Rove, um, the great uh, political strategist and political thinker and political historian. And what Rove was, uh, Rove keeps looking at the 2022 election, and he has a theory right now that 2022 is shaping up like 1958 in this regard, and that there's about to be a turnover in political leadership in this country. And we're going to move away from uh, octogenarians and septuagenarians, and even in some cases, nonagenarians, uh, which Diane Feinstein will be next year. Uh, she'll turn 90, California senior senator. Um, and we're going to bring in a new wave of politicians. These are politicians who are in their 30s and 40s. Kamala is in her 50s right now. I'm not sure she qualifies for that. I'm just not sure what her place is in the party right now in terms of being its leader moving forward. Historically, incumbent vice presidents, it's their race to lose. And you go back and you look at Al Gore, Walter Mondale, Joe Biden, and so forth. The history is pretty much on her side. But my gosh, the uncertainty that she raises within the Democratic ranks right now. And this is what gives oxygen to the whole Gavin Newsom boomlet right now, that uh, there's got to be someone better on the Democratic side to run. But you know, Lee, I think for Kamala to step up, she first of all, she has to be more visible. You see a lot of sniping from her uh, from her crowd right now. Her people are complaining uh, to reporters, not on the record, but just that she's getting lousy assignments on the campaign trail, not the respect she is due. Um, so she's not kind of creating the uh, the capital that vice presidents get. But again, you have to go to a column like this and see all these tie-breaking votes. But, you know, I challenge the average reader out there to remember any of these. So it's just it's just not she's in the spotlight and she is just you know, I think the word liability comes to mind, Lee. What, what do you think? Yeah, so Kamala Harris's approval rating is about 38%. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, I'm not a political expert, but just as a lay person watching her be interviewed on television or reading stories about her, watching YouTube videos, um, aside from, you know, the talents she might have as a politician, she just doesn't cut it. Um, certainly at the national level, she's not a functional, effective politician. She's not going to get any better, um, and the idea that um, the idea that she's uh, she's one of the most uh, remarkable vice presidents in the history of the country because she's signed her name to break a to break a tie in the, in the Senate. Um, I don't know, Bill. Uh, to me, that hardly qualifies as uh, a, 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 as a reason to be regarded as a remarkable vice president. But I mean, Bill, you know, when you look at when you look at the great politicians when within our lifetime, um, putting aside any partisanship, I put Reagan in that category. I put Clinton in that category. Category. Yeah. Um, these are people who could uh, who could bring people together, um, and we're leaders. We're political leaders. What you know, whether you like them or not, um, uh, Kamala Harris is 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 nowhere close to that. Um, I would have to say that among current active politicians, in terms of effectiveness, um, in terms of really not embarrassing oneself, um, she's near the bottom of she's near the bottom of the list. Yeah, it's um, having all that said, she's still not in a bad position politically in this regard. Just look at the hand the Democrats have right now for 2024. Um, the president will be 81 going on 82 uh, in that election cycle. He's already kept uh, from the press pretty much. He did a uh, event in uh, Pennsylvania with uh, uh, Fetterman, the uh, Senate candidate up there. And it's just a very interesting study in in uh, media suppression in terms of how little interaction they wanted both the president and Fetterman, who's recovered from a stroke to have with the press. Uh, so. 
there's going to be pressure inside the Democratic Party for Joe Biden to move on if he has a bad midterm. Second, it might be the kind of midterm, Lee and Jonathan, where somebody just doesn't kind of rise up as the great knight to save the party uh, or the great dame, if you will. Uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia would have been a very obvious candidate for this, but she looks like she's going to lose her race in Georgia. Uh, Charlie Crist, uh, who's running against uh, DeSantis, would obviously be the dragon slayer, but I don't think he's going to win his race either. Ditto better work in Texas. So now it kind of falls to Gavin Newsom. And I think Gavin Newsom is actually pretty easy pickings for Kamala. Or it could be just um, kind of a case of double double homicide, if you will, in terms of they just go after each other's records, if you'd like. Um, but just she must look around at this point and see a president who maybe cannot serve a second term. Bernie Sanders is no spring chicken. Elizabeth Warren is no spring chicken. Uh, I don't think anybody would take Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, seriously as a presidential candidate in terms of not getting the nomination, but getting 270 electoral votes. So in some regards, it might be her race by default if somebody else can't come along like a nuisance, some outside figure and take it. So for all that we can kind of dump on her, all the jokes about her being uh, the real life Veep, not the one at HBO, it's still not bad to be Kamala Harris. Uh, gentlemen, let's uh, talk about the economy. Uh, housing prices have plunged by 30% in September compared to the previous year, according to uh, the California Association of Realtors. Lee, is this a significant decline unique in California, or do you think the nation is being confronted uh, with a housing uh, collapse in the in the not too near future? You know, Jonathan, uh, mortgage rates are way, way up. Um, to give an example, a year ago, uh, maybe a bit more mortgage rates were... Um, Around three. Um, I mean, I refied my own California home jumbo mortgage at two and a half percent. I often joke with friends saying that I wouldn't let I wouldn't have lent lent myself to 30 years, 30 years for two and a half percent. It's obvious what's going to happen to inflation. Uh, well, inflation now is way up and so are mortgage rates. Um in some areas, uh 7%. Um, so what this does is this kills the demand for housing because uh, not only does the effective cost of housing go up so much when interest rates double like that, but um, a lot of it, a lot of people who would have been eligible who could have qualified for mortgages at three percent now are now don't qualify at six percent or even seven, you know, much less seven percent. So we're seeing um, a remarkable drop in home sales. Um, I think you mentioned thirty. I think you mentioned thirty percent. Um, no surprise whatsoever. Uh, high interest rates kill housing markets. Um, and this is resulting in a, uh, so what happens is sellers um, say, okay, I'm going to take my home off the market. Um, some some have the flexibility to do that and they might want to wait it out. Others might, might for whatever reason, have to sell uh, in, in the immediate future. Um, so there's going to be downward pressure on those prices. Um yeah, in terms of affordability, California remains remarkably unaffordable. the The median, you know, the median home price in California, um, and, and this is the median price. So there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of those houses aren't all that nice. Um, remains affordable for less than one out of three households, um, and that's just uh, there's no other country and there's no other state within the 48 that has anything close to that mm -hmm. so california's economy is um it's going to struggle uh going to be much it's going to get much worse because of uh, we're seeing we're seeing large drops in tax revenue um in september was the last number the last revenue numbers were released in september 
that showed an 11% drop in revenue. That's going to be worse uh, for the next cycle. Um, you know, Newsom suddenly started vetoing bills um, that would have been sort of, you know, down the middle of the fairway for Democratic president, um, such as requiring, you know, such as mandatory kindergarten. Um, right. And he started citing fiscal pressures. Well, um, yeah, he knows difficult times are ahead. Um, I suspect that... Um, it may have been, you know, uh, uh, the enormous surplus, enormous budget surplus we had now seems to be largely frittered away. And now the state, um, you know, the state's always on boom bust revenue cycles because so much, uh, so much revenue comes in from the uh, top one half of one percent through capital gains, selling stocks and selling private businesses and so forth. When the stock market goes down, when the economy goes down. California's economy um, declines every single time, and the California economic decline is always worse than the nation's average. Lee, I'm still waiting for my uh, beat inflation gas refund check. It hasn't arrived in the mail yet. Have you gotten yours yet? Yeah, you know, I have. (laughs) Bill, I haven't gotten mine either. And um, I mean, as as recently as as two weeks ago, uh, gas in my... uh, Gas in my neck of the woods was up to seven dollars a gallon, um, and <laughs> it's a little bit lower. It's a little bit lower now, uh, but um, you know, again, there was there was a political issue going on here. Kevin Guy, Kevin Kiley, who's in the uh, um, who's in the uh, uh, state government, um, who's running for House Representatives in this district, had introduced um, uh, bills to suspend the state's gas tax um, months and months ago. Right. Um, and he's a Republican, so of course uh, his bill was rebuffed. And Californians are paying a lot of money for gas. Uh, and as far as I can tell, relief has not uh, arrived yet. But Bill, again, when we think about the strategic, the strategic aspect of delaying these uh, checks until right before the election, um, you know, one can only draw one conclusion from that. Well, maybe maybe we're on somebody's list, Lee, in which case I guess we should be flattered. I mean, somebody actually reads our stuff. But uh, just one final thing on housing I want to get out of you, Lee. It's you know, it's not just uh, housing prices here in mortgages. It's also the way the market works. If you can't buy a house, what do you do? You rent a home. Well, rentals are now going through the roof as well. The market, you know. You know, reacts that way. Is there going to be any effect, Lee, when we look at the affordable housing uh, situation in California? And here's here's what I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, you look at some areas like Santa Monica, which are trying to be very innovative, and they run up against a lot of government bureaucracy. There are other pockets uh, not too far from me, Woodside and Atherton here in Northern California, where there is fierce nimbyism against affordable housing. So do you think, Lee, that maybe nimbyism is going to be in trouble with, um, with the economy going this way? Or is just nimbyism and housing just uh, the same old, same old for California? California. Yeah, uh, same old, same old. Um, you know, Billy brought up Santa Monica. Um, I think the median rent in Santa Monica, and this is probably for a small two bedroom apartment, median rent is now $4,000 a month. Yeah. So you think about that, and, um, you know, industry standards say somebody, somebody who rents a $4,000 a month apartment has got to have a household income of about $150,000. You know, the state is uh, the state has been trying, you know, very dysfunctionally, very ineffectively to try to get locations such as Santa Monica and Atherton, San Mateo to build more housing. Um, And in Atherton, I believe, Bill, um, uh, I think median home price there is what, seven to eight million dollars. And so the state is pushing Atherton to build, I think, roughly 350 units, 350, 400 units. Um, holding back a certain number of those for, quote, low-income families. Um, 
the state needs to kind of rethink this. Uh, California needs more housing built. Um, where can housing be built affordably? Uh, not in Atherton. <laughs> <laughs> There's absolutely no reason whatsoever to try to build affordable housing in Atherton. It's not affordable. It never will be affordable. Um, well, 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 Lee, you would take a you take a lot that might sell what might be worth fifteen or twenty million dollars if you put a big mansion on there and you cut it into four pieces. Let's say, okay, well, let's do the math. What's twenty divided by four? You've created five million dollar houses. Well, that's still out of the price range of those Californians who we would call middle class and looking for a home and probably can't go very much beyond the million dollar barrier, if that. So, you know, again, we focus on nimbyism in these rich towns. I think you're right. That's not necessarily the problem. It's just where else is this going to happen? And again, I just wonder if. A, if a tumbling economy, mortgage rates, and just the pressure to do something actually makes a difference in 2023, or this is just what we're locked into being Californians? Yeah, um, great question. I suspect I suspect this is what we're locked into. Um, I would love to see uh, I would love to see political efforts to try to create resources and enhance places where building is much less costly, such as. Uh, Interior California, Central Valley, um, those economies are still suffering. They would benefit from having more people living there, uh, more economic activity. <laughs> um, having billionaires spend time in court and uh, try to buy off politicians um, so Ather the city of Atherton doesn't have to build 300 additional housing units just makes makes no sense whatsoever. Um, the uh, uh, solutions exist, but but uh, but it's <laughs> but it's not to have areas with. Uh, with people with billionaires um, having to having to having to deal with uh, oh let's let's build a ten story apartment unit make sure it's uh, make sure it's for people whose household incomes are less than forty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, let's move for a moment uh, and talk about the uh, coronavirus state of emergency in California. It's reported that Governor Newsom plans to end the emergency in February. Uh, this comes as President Biden has recently said that the pandemic is over, and even. On campus at Stanford, the mask requirement has been lifted in classrooms and in the Marguerite shuttles. Uh, Bill, what do you think the basis is for the governor's delay? I think the governor channeled Senator John Blutarski. Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Okay, that's uh, that's one of my favorite movies, Animal House. I learned, Lee, in my times where I've talked to college crowds, by the way, don't quote Animal House while there are millions of lines in it which are applicable to everyday life. Nothing's over until we decide. Uh, you know, you screwed up, you trusted us. Uh, fact, drunk, and stupid's no way to go through life. The list goes on. Uh, teenagers have not seen the movie, so they don't get it. But in this case, um, this is really kind of the heart of uh, pandemic policy in California. Nothing is over until we decide. And the governor has decided that it will be over at the end of February. So technically the state of emergency is coming to an end, but not for several more months. Why is he doing this? Uh, I suspect he's doing it for one reason, and that's because there is another wave of COVID coming our way, two subvariants, I believe, of Omicron. Um, I think they're called BA1 and BA1.1 uh, for those who are really into this. Uh, so you could be in a situation where you see California's rates spike. It'll make for bed bad um, bad headlines. And the question, what's California doing it? So for the governor to declare it's over and then to have it spike, it's kind of what Joe Biden ran into. Uh, remember when he had the famous, um, you know, COVID is over party at the White House, and then sure enough, COVID came roaring back. So I think he's doing it that way. But the question here, Lee and Jonathan, is if COVID is not done with us, um, 
how many Californians are done with COVID? And this is in part a you know data-driven question. If you look at the number of people in this country who are getting um, the uh, the latest booster shot, I think it's about 5% of a population that's eligible. Uh, anecdotally, um, I took an airplane across the country yesterday. Uh, very few people in the airports now wearing a mask, although it was on a California flight. So a lot of people wearing masks just because they, they believe in wearing a mask. Um, but it just seems that the public doesn't want to go along with this. I'm not sure, Lee and Jonathan, what happens if there is a spike in someone like Barbara Ferrer, the um, the county health official in Los Angeles, or or up here in Santa Clara, one of these officials decide that it's time to either lock down or mask up. I think the public is going to say, oh, you know, no no more of this. But I don't know. What do you think, Lee? It's our, our colleague, Neil Ferguson, has a phrase for us. He calls it COVID boredom, if you will. Um, he doesn't want to diminish the disease. Uh, we all know people who've had it, um, and, and some people have had terrible consequences of this. But there's this kind of attitude out there. Neil's contentious historian is just, you know, you look at this historically, people deal with a pandemic for a period of time, and eventually they get bored with it. They get bored with dealing with the restrictions of it, and they just get restless. And it just seems to me that that's a point we're at right now. People just are, if they're not over COVID, they're certainly sick of being sick of COVID. Yeah. I mean, you look around the state um, and you go to restaurants, bars, cafes, you look at sidewalks. Um, uh, I walk around, uh, you know, the UCLA campus where I teach pretty much looks like life is back to normal. You see, uh, so, so, I, so, I tend to see very few people with masks on. Um, so, restaurants so, Lee, the, yeah. so, the Stanford policy is that uh, kids don't have, will have to wear a mask in the classroom anymore, but the professor can make them wear a mask if he wants that. Is that the same at UCLA or? Interesting. Um, you know, Bill, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know. <laughs> in the classes I teach, um, you know, maybe one out of 20 or 30 kids is wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, and, and you walk around campus and UCLA is a very populated campus. Um, you just see very, very few masks. Um, so, you know, if, if uh, you think about what Newsom's decision means and you think about <laughs> uh, what we'll have it over, was it on February, it was a February 23rd or February 28th? February 28th. And, and it does tail with what the federal government's doing, Lee, where every 90 days they have to renew the public health emergency. And so the White House just did that last week. So that carries over to about the same time as Californians. And you just kind of look around and think, what emergency? This has been two years from now already. Yeah, you know, um, Republicans in the uh, state Senate and Assembly have been um, have been very vocal in trying to get Newsom to drop the state of emergency, really from the standpoint that hey, you know what, this isn't a dictatorship; this is a democracy, mm -hmm. and the state of emergency really gives extraordinary powers to the governor. <laughs> They've been in place for an awful long time, so I understand their concerns, and I'm sympathetic to those concerns. Nobody else except Republicans are pushing Newsom on this. I, I think maybe if you drill deep enough uh, and confidential enough with Democrats, maybe they would be be saying something something different uh, than toe the party line. But um, Newsom's getting relatively little pushback or politically important pushback. So why not keep it going from his standpoint? Um, if COVID does spike, uh, then he can say, I had the foresight to keep the uh, state of emergency in place. Right. Um, so in the absence of political pressure to do otherwise, I think he is, uh, he is Governor Gavin is happy to continue to have the extraordinary powers the state of emergency gives him. Uh, and I think he'll, he'll keep those <laughs> as long as he, uh, on the one hand, as long as he thinks fit, but um, it does, it is not, it is not healthy from a functional dem dem democracy standpoint. We never were intended to live under state of emergencies that went year after year after year, but that's what's occurring in California. 
And Lee and Jonathan, what a great debate topic this would be if we had a Sacramento-based debate where you could put the two candidates down and say, Governor Newsom, do you regret anything that you did with the last round of lockdowns and school closures? What would you do differently? And Senator Dolly, if you became governor, what would you do differently as well? But again, we just that's going to get shoehorned into this one debate that nobody's going to watch. So again, broken record here, but it's just it's very frustrating just to see all of these things just gets glossed over. It is um it's a sad state. It's a sad state for democracy in California. Um, it's a one-party state, and uh, the one party is really doing everything they can to squash uh, to squash other voices. And you know, we live in a society now where diversity and equity and inclusivity is supposed to be paramount. Not in California politics. Not whatsoever. Yeah. And gentlemen, we can't um, have a podcast about California without talking about Hollywood. Uh, Jane Fonda has emerged as a proponent of Proposition 30, uh, which would hike taxes on millionaires to subsidize electric vehicles and fund wildfire response prevention. Remember, this is the the Lyft support initiative that Governor Newsom vehemently opposes. Um, Other than some rap artists um, supporting Proposition 28, funding for art and music and K-12 education, and some interest among celebrities in the L.A. mayoral race, Celebrities are just not coming out as strong as as they do in a presidential cycle, are they, Bill? No, they're not. Uh, and I kind of wonder how this carries over into further society. For example, Lee, if you remember the Super Bowl in, in Los Angeles uh, last year, what did we get? Bitcoin ad, coin, you know, just you know, cryptocurrency ad after cryptocurrency ad. Uh, Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm was selling it. Matt Damon was uh, selling it. What did he say? Fortune only favors the bold, uh, which begged two questions. Number one, what do you know about crypto? And number two, did you actually accept crypto and payment for this or did you take cold hard cash? Uh, here's Jane Fonda, uh, who is uh, 85 years old in December. So, uh, boy, do I feel old when I say John Jane Fonda is 85 years old. Uh, but she's out there and she is uh, stumping for Prop 30. And what was interesting, what I found buried in the story, Lee, was of all things, uh, she was asked about, uh, because she's obviously very big in renewables, where she has a lot of common ground with Newsom, though she um, alluded to disagreeing on some things. Uh, they asked her what she thought about Diablo Canyon, California's only nuclear plant staying open. And, you know, she said, I can deal with it because we need it as a carryover. So here's the star of the China syndrome. Remember the China syndrome back in the 1970s with her and Jack Lemmon and Michael Douglas, I think, about a about a you know a possible meltdown in a nuclear reactor. And she's suddenly pro-nuclear. So Again, we've talked about this on past podcasts, but it just shows that, you know, just how these activists and even these green people just kind of have to have sort of a come to Jesus with themselves about reality when it comes to energy in California. But, you know, there she is pushing for Prop 30, and we'll see if Jane Fonda has the same muscle she had back in the 1970s and 80s when it came to causes and activism. Yeah, I think she might be. I think her mega is not is uh, not as loud as it was back in the day. And, uh, you know, Bill, as we noted before, Diablo Canyon, uh, California's only nuclear power plant, is responsible for 10 percent of the state's energy. And, um, you know, again, ironically, um, the world probably wouldn't be in quite the um, the climate condition or the perceived climate condition that it is now if we had invested more in nuclear energy. Um, uh, interestingly enough, nuclear energy is 1,000 times safer um, than the most prevalent energy source for electricity generation throughout the world, which is coal. 1,000 times safer in terms of deaths, 1,000 times safer um, in terms of severe illness. Um, People are scared of uh, nuclear power because of movies like The China Syndrome and because of um, Chernobyl um, and because of Fukushima. Um, 
Chernobyl, the Chernobyl disaster never should have happened. Safety protocols that were in place here uh, were never followed. If they had been, Chernobyl would have not have, have occurred. Um, Fukushima happened because they decided to build a nuclear reactor right on the <laughs> right on the ocean, and yeah. the fourth largest earthquake ever recorded happened to hit. Um, um, and you know the idea to sort of lock down nuclear power for so many decades has been remarkably short-sighted. Um, you know, uh, one one of uh, one of our former PhD economic students uh, in UCLA and now teaches at Columbia estimates that um, you know when Japan shut down every nuclear power plant after Fukushima, um, Japan had to start importing natural gas to 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 make up for that electricity. Electricity prices skyrocketed. People used less electricity. And uh, what he found is that about 5,000 extra people died in Japan between 2011 and 2014 because of the shutdown of all the nuclear power plants. Um, and I believe, uh, I believe a total of maybe um, 100 or so were tragic. But um, the point of what they've lost, they lost 5,000 people as a consequence of that. Yeah, you know, you uh, you asked Jonathan about uh, the role of celebrities in this election. Uh, political activism is nothing new to celebrities. You go back to the '60s with John Kennedy, and then uh, Bobby Kennedy's campaign, the likes of Warren Beatty being very politically active. People for years thinking Beatty would himself run for president one day. Uh, here in California, we had an actor, uh, two actors who ran for governor. Uh, both did pretty well for themselves, Reagan and Schwarzenegger, but. If you look at this current climate, uh, I think here's the problem. Celebrities kind of took a detour in the 80s, and they went from you know supporting candidates and causes to having you believe they were experts. And so we had the phenomenon of, you know, somebody would star in a uh, movie about agriculture in the Midwest, and they'd go testify before Congress about agriculture. And you'd look at it and think, what on God's earth do these people know about farming? In fact, they played a farmer. Um, in this political environment, when issues that are driving the polls right now, if you believe those voters' concerns are what? It's the economy. It's... Um, it is crime. It's to a lesser extent immigration. Um, these are all issues in which uh, celebrities can go out and voice their opinion. But it begs the question of what do you really know about this, and how do you really feel it? You know, you can talk about inflation, but you don't live paycheck to paycheck. You can talk about crime, but you probably don't like guns. But you probably have somebody in your security detail who has a concealed weapon permit. Um, you live in a gated community, and the list goes on of just how you know celebrities could come across as tone deaf in this election. So maybe in twenty. 24, it's a better economy. The country's in a better place. We see celebrities come rolling out. But I think just if I were running a serious campaign in California right now, I'd probably just keep celebrities out of it. Unless, unless frankly, I was trailing by 30 or 40 points. I just desperately needed the attention that a celebrity can provide through TV. You know, Jane Fonda has been chastising um, the wealthy and corporations um, for not paying, quote, their fair share. Um, and Bill, you know, the the uh, what happens when taxes go up in California? The idea is, well, you know, all these people, all these billionaires who can afford to pay additional taxes and they can afford to pay additional taxes. But it turns out they end up paying far fewer taxes um, than uh, the, the, than the projected estimates, oftentimes right. less than half as much revenue is predicted because you can't for you can't put a gun to their head and say, don't move out of California. Don't declare residence in another state. Don't make use of the tax laws. Um, and what um, what she fails to understand is that 
people people have alternatives to paying to paying uh, exorbitant tax rates. Um, and interestingly enough, Bill, as you pointed out, um, Newsom is a not in favor of Proposition Thirty. Um, if it right. was to be passed, um, you know, personal income tax, the top personal income tax rate bill goes to what, like sixteen percent? Yep. 16%. Um, so all of, all of those very, very wealthy Californians um, who moved to other states, such as Elon Musk, who avoided a $2 billion tax bill on the, on the sale of Tesla stock, um, you're getting a lot more people doing that. Um, so this is what uh, the, this is what political activists like Fonda fail to, uh, to understand. Um, you can pass the law it may well not have the the impact that you think it will that you think it might and it end up it ends up hurting the state uh, much more because we lose a lot of economic activity so lee i want you to take a bow here and then we'll sign off of that you have been talking about this for years now your fellow economists at hoover like josh rao and others have been chronicling the wealth flight out of california and finally at long last gavin newsom is acknowledging that this is a thing which is why he opposes prop 30 because he says it's going to drive wealthy people out of the state so take that as a victory my friend. <laughs> Bill, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll do my victory lap later today. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, gentlemen. Fun as always. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. And Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Voigtis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.